it is good to see you. I invite you now to open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 40. Uh, it's rather more difficult to find. It's um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. But while you're searching and hunting it down, let me uh, just say quickly, I, I would love to spend a lot of time telling you about our last five weeks, um, but I don't think this is the time nor the place. There's a lot to say. There's much to tell. There's, it was a very rich, rich experience. But this much I can say, um, thank you. Thank you for allowing us to uh, experience that. It was, um, it leaves a scar on your soul. And we are grateful. We're grateful to be home, but we are grateful to have had that chance to be in that place, that part of the world, where God reigns. Uh, he reigns there too. So um, thank you. Now you follow as I read from a book that's inspired, it's infallible, it's inerrant, and I'm going to read you simply four verses out of that book. This is from Ezekiel chapter 40, verses 1 through 4. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after this city was struck down, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears. And set your heart upon all that I shall show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word, this, in, this endures forever. I have a message from Baku. Uh, I had hoped that God would form one in me, and I must say this is not exactly the one I thought he would form. But um, to tell it to you, uh, it's going to take a couple of three weeks. And also to tell it to you, I, I've got to begin with some things that may at first blush appear to be um, obscure, meaningless, <laughs> boring, insignificant, but they are not. So let me take about five minutes and um, tell you those quick things, and then we'll move into the heart of the matter. Here's boring item number one. For at least 40 years, if not more, I have been given the privilege 
of um, being able to spend time with God every morning before I had to go to work. The church here op- opens at 8.30 in the morning, and I try to be finished with my time with God um, by 8.30 out of respect for the other staff members and for institutional decorum. But in Baku, I had no such 8.30 a.m. deadline. Consequently, I was often able to spend twice that much um, just with God and his word. And that time was wonderful. Here's boring item number two. Susie and I have different sleep schedules. I go to bed early and get up early. She goes to bed late and gets up late. And when you're in such an unusual surrounding like we were in, um, even the norms that you're, that you're used to are unreliable. But in this case, I, almost every morning, I was at least assured of three hours alone with just me and God. Here's boring item number three. In the providence of God, I went to Baku um, at a certain place in my reading schedule of the Bible. Now, many of you have heard me discuss this before, but the way that I read the Bible through is like this. I start at Genesis 1-1, Psalm 1-1, and Matthew 1-1. And then I move through the scriptures in, in those three sections. Now, I'll do one one day, one the next, and then come back and start it all. That's, that's the way I read the Bible. Um, but in the providence of God... Um, When I arrived at Baku, I was somewhere in the vicinity, in my reading schedule, of 1 Chronicles 15, Ezekiel 36, and Revelation 17 or 18, or thereabouts. Now, boring item number four. One of the reasons that I went to Baku was purely selfish. Um, I, I wanted to hear from God. I wanted him to meet us there and direct us as to how and when we should finish our days here at Grace Divan. Of course, um, I, I'm always willing and, and ready to submit to the leadership and eldership of this church. And should they ever say to me, it is time for you to step aside, I, I will gladly do so. But I was hoping that God would give me some kind of clarity, some kind of leadership, some kind of direction as to how and when he would have me finish my days here. And whereas um, God did not jump through the hoops that I set for him, imagine that, he did speak. He spoke through these three portions of his word. And thus I have a message for us. It is not some new vision, some new vision that God has trumpeted to his faithful servant, Jimmy Young. No, no. In fact, if you know anything about 1 Kings 19, where God met Elijah on top of a mountain, 
there's an earthquake and then there's a fire and there's a big storm and God was in none of those things and then he comes in a still small voice remember that it was more like that it was more like that low whisper that God spoke <clears throat> through his word this is not some new insight that I have for you it's in here and it's been here all along he just ministered it to me through these three sections of his word while we were there um, I have come to believe that these three sections are all talking about the same thing and that's what I mean by in his providence I was at these three sections in my own study of his word and um, and he spoke so here is that message over a matter of three weeks um, we have the Lord's Supper next week and we'll come back to it two weeks from today guys almost all uh, interpreters of this book of the, the scriptures almost all of them agree that um, Ezekiel 40 through 48 is one of the most difficult passages to be found anywhere in the Bible. And I'm not here to tell you that I have discovered the correct interpretation. I'm not here to say that. I'm simply saying that certain portions of these eight and nine chapters are fairly easy to manage. Uh, for, for example, in verse 1, what you have there is nothing more than a date formula. That is, the, the author is telling you exactly when this takes place. Um, uh, on the exact day when the, when the city was struck down, um, the year after the city was struck down, on that very day, the hand of the Lord is... He's, all he's doing is giving you um, uh, the historical moment at which this vision took place. And that's what he tells you in verse 2. It was a, a visionary experience. And then in verse 3, he tells you that there was a man. A man that showed up with a measuring reed it's just something similar to a yardstick it's just something by which measurements can take place so what takes place in the next nine chapters of Ezekiel and you, and you can thumb through it and see it real real easily in the in the headings this man is giving to Ezekiel the stipulations and the regulations and the specifications of a new temple that God is going to build you know, the old one has been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And in chapters 8 through 11 in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is shown all of the corruption and all of the evil and all of the rot that is associated with that previous temple. That one has been washed away. That one has been destroyed. That one's gone. And so what happens here in chapter 40 of Ezekiel and to the end of the book God is giving, in very, in very visionary language, he is giving the stipulations, the regulations, the, 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 the kinds of things that he wants in the house that he is going to build. And so Ezekiel is taken on somewhat of a tour and is shown what God wants in this new worship life that will be associated with Israel once she is set free from captivity. 
And the thing that you will notice in these nine chapters, if you read it, is that there's nothing in there about about human hope, about human redemption, about human anything. This new one that he is showing to Ezekiel is going to be all about his glory. Everything about it is going to terminate on God's glory in this new worship life for Israel. Now, all of that brings me to 1 Chronicles 17. I told you it was three sections, guys. It was three sections that I was dealing with those five weeks. So I'd, 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 I'd be in one and it would say this. And, and I, as I said, I've come to believe they're really all about the same thing. First Chronicles 17, you might want to flip over there. Um, this is a rather lengthy story. If I were to read it, it would probably take me 13 chapters to read. So I'm not going to read it to you. I'm going to try to tell it to you without distortion. But it's somewhat of a, of a familiar story. It's just, uh, but by the way, it's found two places. It's found here in First Chronicles 17. It's also found in Second um, uh, Samuel 7. And the stories are very similar in both places, and so you can take your pick. But I studied them both, and, and I think that was helpful. But the story, as I said, is, is, is somewhat familiar. David is, is at the end, or at least near the end of his life, which may be true of me as well. But he... Um, he calls Nathan the prophet in, and he says, you know, um, I've got my house all built up real nice, just the way I want it, and, um, and I want to build one for God. I'm, um, I want to do a great thing for God as I finish. Um, I want to build God a house, which is a very worthy desire on his part. I think. And you remember Nathan, the prophet, says, okay, David, go right ahead. And then in the night, God comes to Nathan and, and he, um, he tells Nathan to go back to David. And this is where you get the real stunner. God tells to Nathan, you go back and you tell David, thanks, but no thanks. So you want to build me a house, do you, David? That's nice, but no thanks. Not you, David. No, David, you're not going to build me a house. As worthy as that desire might be, not you. Not you, David. So you want to do something great for me, do you, David? I'm not interested. You see, David, um, I'm the only house builder around here, not you. You're, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build one for you. Because... 
You might not know this, but your son Solomon one day is going to say something like this. He's going to say, unless the Lord builds the house, he who builds, builds in vain. So David, that was real nice of you. And I, uh, I want to thank you for your, your kind uh, intentions. But not you. No, David, you can't do it. Oh, David, I, I, I want a house all right. But just not the one that you would build. The one I want to see built is, I'm going to show it to Ezekiel. And I'm going to give him all the measurements and all the instructions and all the stipulations. I'm going, to, I'm going to give all of that to Ezekiel. Because you see, David, the only great thing that's being done here is the thing that I'm doing, not the thing that you're doing. You see, David, I'm going to use you And and I'll tell you a little bit more about that a little bit later, David. But but you see, David, left to yourself, you would probably build something, something like Jimmy Young would build. And I don't want that. You know, in this section... We're given the reason, and many of you remember this. We're given the reason why David is turned down. We're told that David is a man of blood, is a man of bloodshedding. He's a man who's fought many wars. And that is said three times in this section. You want to build something for me, David? No. No, David. Very frankly, David, you're unqualified. David, you're a man that shed much blood. And as I recall, says God, some of the blood that you shed was blood of one of your best friends, Uriah the Hittite, the husband of Bathsheba. You're a man that spilled a lot of blood, David. Some of it was innocent. Was, was, was David cruel on the battlefield? I don't know. Did David do bad things out there in, in, in battle? I don't know. Did David mistreat his enemies once he vanquished them? I don't know. But I do know this. That David said, God, I'd like to build you a house. And God looks at him and says, No! You're not qualified. Because David, you are you are one broken fellow. In fact, that's chapter 17. In chapter 21, David pulls another stunt that's probably worse than anything he had done before. Remember, he wanted a census taken. He wanted to see just how big his army was, you know. He wanted to know uh, just how many people do I rule over. 
So he goes to Joab, his military general, and he says, I want you to go take a census. And Joab says, no, don't do that, David. It's not necessary. David, please don't do that. And David says, I'm the boss here. You go do it. And he does it. Takes the census. You remember what happened? 70,000 people lost their lives in a, piece of, in a stroke of judgment because of David's pride. So you want to build me a house, do you, David? No, David, you're not qualified. And oh, by the way, David, even in the midst of your sin, that's going to cost 70,000 lives, I'm still going to use you. Do you remember how that story ends? That's in 1 Chronicles 21, by the way. I, I've already, I think I've already said that, but... At the, at the end of that story, this angel has come to slay in judgment the citizens of Jerusalem. And, and David goes and buys a threshing floor from Aranu. And Aranu tries to give it to him. And David says, no, I'm not going to offer to the Lord something that, that, um, that costs me nothing. And he buys this threshing floor and he offers sacrifices right there on that spot. And do you remember what else happened on that spot? That place becomes the spot on which Solomon will ultimately build the temple. And by the way, it also becomes the same spot, or at least the same area in which Jesus Christ was crucified. So you want to build a house for me, do you, David? No, I'm not going to let you. Because, David, you've shed a lot of blood. But David, even in this last stunt that you're going to pull, even that's not going to stop me from doing what I'm doing, says God. Because you see, the only great thing that's going on here is the thing that I'm doing, not the thing that you're doing for me. And I'm going to use that event, that horrible episode that cost 70,000 lives, I'm going to use that event, and it's going to finally determine the location of the place where I'm going to do my best redemptive work. Because, David, even your sin is not going to stop me. Thanks, Dave, for the, uh, for the nice desire, but no thanks. But, David, know this. I'm even going to use your sin. And at the end of that ugly event, we're going to at least know the location of where the great sacrifice will be made. But it was a nice thought that you wanted to build me a house, David. But the only house that needs to be built is the one that I'm going to build. Guys, I'm pretty much out of time, but allow me to make one application to us of all that. And then we'll try to pick back up here in two weeks 
But this morning, I'm only going to make one piece of application, and I hope you hear it as it's intended. Um, but we're going to come back to this, these three sections to try and figure out what the house God is building looks like. About 30 years ago, um, I was out to supper with R.C. Sproul. It was R.C., his wife, and Chuck Green and myself. Uh, Chuck Green, probably one of my dearest friends in the ministry, died while I was in Baku. I'd always told Susie that I was going to be at that funeral. I didn't get to go. But the four of us, after supper, went to R.C.'s apartment. He was teaching a course in my doctoral program, and I was one of his students, but we spent pretty much every night together. And um, at one of those events, one of those nights, I said to R.C., you know, I said something like David. I said, you know, I, I, I'd really like to do something. I'd really, like to, I'd really like to build a church. I'd really like to start a church. But you know, I'm, I'm not so sure uh, that I'm going to do it for my glory or for God's. And R.C. said, it's probably for yours. At least 30% of it. The other 70% is probably for God's glory. So just forget the 30 and move with the 70. My, my only concern is that R.C.'s percentages may have been a little bit off. God, I want, to, I want to do something great for you. He didn't stop me. But maybe he should have. Guys, um, you need to note this. David was told no because David was a part of the problem. As great as his desire may have been, God disqualified David because David was a contributor to the problem. And we'll talk about that problem in the coming weeks. But the, but the redemptive side of this story is after David has been confronted with his sin, his reaction, his response to having been told no, I want you to see it. It begins in verse 16. This is David's response after Nathan the prophet has come back to him and told him, God has rejected you, David. I know you wanted to build something nice, but no. This is David's response. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? You see, guys, one of the points that I want you to see is that in his response, one can begin to sense the impact that this no has had on him. The, the idea that he has been turned down has really left its mark on David. And he has overcome this, this, this term, oh Lord God, is found eight times in this little paragraph. 
He is overcome, having been confronted by his own sin. He's overcome with repentance. He's overcome that God has not already discarded him. He's overcome that he still has a role, a role for him to play. And I think, and, and this is a bit of interpretive license here, but, but, but I think David is aware that he, has, he can play the role of being an illustration that God will continue to use people even after their sin. That he is a, a poster child for grace and mercy to people who don't deserve it. Me, the one who shed so much blood, some of it innocent. I remember Uriah the Hittite. I know the name Bathsheba. She lives right in the room right down the hall. And yet, this Messiah that is hinted at in this story is going to be one of my descendants? You mean, though disqualified because of my sin to build this house, You still love me? Why? That makes me a living example of someone who has received forgiveness who doesn't deserve it. And so maybe God's people for millennia to come will be able to look at me and say, yeah, I'm one broken fella. But when I see what God did in the life of David, there's even hope for somebody like me. In a word, David is humbled. He's humbled by having been confronted, rebuked. By his sin. And I am an example of people who get grace who don't deserve it. Hey guys. Tell me, whose house do you think I really wanted to build? Mine or God's? <laughs> I've been struggling with that for five weeks. And when I look around Gracie Van, I think one of the biggest issues we have is me. Listen to what David says now. This starts in verse 19. 
for your servants. Try to, try to hear what he's... Try to read between the lines. For your servant's sake, O Lord, and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness in making known all these great things. There is none like you, O Lord, and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making for yourself a name for great and awesome things and driving out nations before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. And you made your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord God, became their God. And now, O Lord, let the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house be established forever. <clears throat> and do as you have spoken. And, and, and your name will be established and magnified forever. Do you hear it? David, I mean, God, I wanted to do something great for you. I wanted to come alongside and help you. But having seen my sin, All I know now is that I want to watch. I want to be around when you're doing the great things that you do to build your own house. I want to, I want to watch as you build a, a house that magnifies your name forever. So do I. But I think, guys, Gracie Van needs to make some course corrections. There are some really good things here at Gracie Van, really good things. And the bad ones, the bad things, I led you into that. Because you see, I'm a part of the problem. Now, you're going to be glad to hear that the other two messages is not about your money. I'm not trying to raise money. It's not even about missions. It's about his house. And the one that he's building and what it looks like. And trying to see to it that Grace Evan looks like that one. So I can't quit. Not just yet. For those of you who are eager to see me go, and I'm not talking about years. I don't know how long I'm talking about. I'm simply saying that there needs to be some course corrections. Some things that are adjusted as we re-steer the ship just a bit. But this house, it needs to be one where his name is established and magnified forever. And at the center of that house, 
the one that he's building, is sacrifice. Sacrifice for sin. The sacrifice for sin. The house that God builds is known as a place of sacrifice. The God who builds this house is the God who gives, not takes. Listen. For God so loved the world that he Did you hear it? Our Father, um, would you allow us, as wicked as we are, to be around when you do the great thing of building your house? Forgive me, O oh God, that I ever thought I could build one for you. When the only house that is worth building is the one that you're building. The only great thing that is being done is the great thing that you're doing. And would you allow us to be around while you do it? Would you allow us to um, not help you do it, but watch you as you do? And then bring our lives into conformity to what we see you doing. Oh God, you will build your house with us or without us. We just want to be there while you do. We want to be a part of something that magnifies your name forever. We don't want to play, we don't want to toy, we want to be a part. We want to be there while you establish your name to be magnified forever. Thank you for the extremes to which you have gone to save people as undeserving as we are. At the center of that house you're building is sacrifice. And that's what we want to be a part of. Allow us, for Jesus' sake.